Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. It's wonderful to be together. If we have not met, my name is Gabe Phillips. It's a huge, huge privilege to uh, have you here this morning at Life Changes. Let's dive right into the word this morning for time's sake. As I said, my name is Gabe Phillips. I am married to the amazing Fiona and uh, dad to the incredible Olivia. And I had the privilege to take a team to Zimbabwe the last week. We spent uh, seven, eight days there in the capital, Harare, and some of the outer-lying areas. We'll give full feedback on that next week, Sunday, just for time's sake. But for me, it was a big thing because... It was me going home for the first time in five, six years. I was born in Harare, grew up there, lived for 15 years there, half my life in Zimbabwe, now half my life here in South Africa. And going home was amazing. And I, and I joked around with the guys going back, telling them, guys, don't be freaked out. I'm a big deal in Harare. I was just joking, you know, a little bit. And uh, they're all a little bit disappointed. There was no uh, fanfare when I arrived at the airport. But it was amazing. When I took them to my primary school, we walked through the gates and I said to a couple of them, I said, guys, you know what, it's going to go, there might be a slow clap, round of applause, and guys standing up just because of tears because they see me after 18 years. Jokingly, I walk in. The first person I walk in goes, Gabriel, the teacher. And these guys are like, you're lying. He, he is a big deal. Like, and it was amazing. But then I walked down to the tennis courts and the guy was sweeping the tennis courts. He looked at him and said, Gabriel, not a word of a lie. And I was like, I didn't remember who they were, but uh, obviously, it's tough being famous. But um, but the incredible thing is, it was amazing how going home was such a special thing for me. To quite surreal seeing the old place where I grew up and memories coming back uh, of childhood times and uh, having this this welcome home type reality, and yet in the in the same breath, seeing the the, the struggles of of home there. Seeing the, the pressure, a nation that's been under the abuse of a dictator for 37, 38 years, seeing roads destroyed, seeing economy collapsing, it just and people making a plan and making do, but you can see even with Mugabe gone, the people's faces, they don't really believe much will change. People who have been crushed and crushed and crushed. And then I came home here, and uh, arriving home was so exciting as I opened the door, and I saw my little girl, Olivia, standing on the couch looking at me. And it was almost like she couldn't believe her eyes when I walked through the door. She just looked at me, a little smile came across, and she whispered, Dada. And uh, it, it, was, it was amazing for my heart. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I came home to an incredible little baby girl, great, great welcome, and my wifey. And then, uh, obviously, you know, the pleasures of being able to sit on your own couch and watch your own TV because now you're not sharing a house with somebody is awesome. And, and also the pleasures of just having Burger King, please don't tell my wife, just around the corner. You know, all these incredible things. And But as I was mulling this over and thinking it through, I realized, you know, for me, it it gets quite, I'll go, where is home? 15 years, 15 years. uh, You know, home is where, you know, where I grew up and with the memories and I'm well known. And and then also here, I've got family here. And inside, you start to get a little bit confused at times. But uh, on one side, I can tell you, I think a lot of us, we're in a similar journey. Maybe you haven't lived in many different homes. Maybe you've grown up in one. Today, I'm, I want to live it, lift it to a bit of a higher plane this morning. But I think some of us, we get so overwhelmed with pressures on the one side, where life just gets so big and daunting. And on the other side, we get so seduced by pleasures that sometimes we're living in the, under the pressures. We just think, if only I can get through these pressures and I can buy myself some more pleasures. Or if I can have a holiday that will give me pleasure, then I'll be okay. But then when we get on this side, we get so overwhelmed and seduced by the pleasures, we start getting numb to what the gospel is calling us to. 
I believe that scripture this morning wants, I want to lift our vision a little bit higher. Um, and if that's all right, we're going to read some scriptures. Found 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 9. Before we read it, it will be on the screen. Uh, but I want to just give us some context. There's a man named Peter who's writing this epistle. He's writing this book to this, this letter to a group of Christians who are found in AD 67 in Rome. And these Christians, Jewish believers who have found Christ, They've left Jerusalem, then Rome, and after Nero's reign, Nero has burnt down the city. Nero has blamed it, as most politicians do, he's blamed it on the, the Christians. He blames on someone else. The Christians start getting persecuted, and actually Nero starts to have, actually beat up and destroy the, those people who call him Christ followers in the city of Rome. This is the state and level of persecution that's going on. Nero has their people, Christians, sewed up in skins of wild beasts then worried by dogs until they died. He has others dressed in shirts made of stiff wax and fixed to axle trees and then set them on fire in his gardens to illuminate his parties. He has people tied to his chariots and dragged through the streets until they are dead. This is from this is historical evidence of what was happened to Christians in those days. He tied others up in leather bags, threw them in water, so that when the bags shrunk, they were squeezed to death. These Christians in Rome were not going through a tough time and needing a prayer. These were Christians who were being persecuted for their lives, for their faith. They became poor because of this, their faith. They became disenfranchised. They lost their status, their land, everything for the sake of the gospel. And I can imagine they were tied between the pressure of Rome and the seduction of if we just get out of Rome and go back to Jerusalem, there's pleasure there. There's family there. There's, there's respite from the pain. We're known there. They got caught between the pressure and the pleasure and wondering, where's home? Rome, Jerusalem. And a letter comes from Jerusalem, from Peter. And Peter is writing, and it's no letter from mom saying, guys, I'm so sorry it's going so tough for you. Come home. It's no letter there. It's no letter telling them to you know, just, just go along with the flow. Just actually become, just say you're a Jew and practice your Christianity at home. Just, just go back to the synagogues, but you don't have to really stand out for Jesus. Keep it quiet. No, it's no comforting letter on that front. This letter is doing something much, much different. And actually, the man Karl Marx, um, the, the sociologist, the famous sociologist, he said that a religion and this idea of heaven is an opiate for the masses. What he was meaning is that it's, a, it's something, it's a drug to dumb down those who don't, to really just soften the pain of those who are not that sharp. People who need a crutch. Those people holding on to religion and the hope of a better future because they can't really cope with today. Religion is an, and heaven is an opiate for the masses. But Peter's writing here, this rebel Peter writing to people, persecuted church in Rome. He's not using this futuristic thought, as we'll read about their, their true home. He's not writing about this futuristic thought as an opiate, as something to dumb them down. But he's writing it as something to rather spur them on and call them to thrive where they're at. So, if you're okay, why don't you stand to your feet? We want to read nine verses of scripture. Then our preaching will be done by eleven. Or 12, we'll see how, how we go. This is what it says. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. 
All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by His power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word from this rebel, Peter, who's writing into a culture of Rome who are under persecution, under pressure, and the seduction of pleasure on the other side and caught in between these two homes. I pray this morning for every one of us, would you resound the gong and the clarion call of our true home, and would we lift our eyes a little bit higher than the here and now, than the, the flesh and blood reality of what we see right in front of us, and we would see our true home calling us onwards and upwards in Christ Jesus. I pray this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 This, this morning, as I press on with faith in my heart, I'm so excited about this this morning to preach. I really am very excited. You see, what Peter's trying to say here is Peter's writing, the first chapter he writes to the people who are under persecution, he doesn't mention, he doesn't give him a rallying call, okay, guys, I know it's hard. He doesn't come with soft and cuddly. He goes from the, right off the bat, he tells him, foreigners living in a foreign land, exiles who have been chosen from God, but you have a priceless inheritance waiting for you in heaven. That cannot be touched, cannot be decayed, cannot fade away. There is something waiting for you. And he lifts their eyes. Why? Because he knows that being heavenly minded has consequences on how we live our lives here. You know, a sociologist that one says it's the opiate of the masses, but actually a sociologist has done experiments. They said people who think more about who have a reality of there is more, another afterlife, actually are more generous here than people who don't. Do you know that? That's the stat. That's not a Christian, uh, not a Christian stat, but the, the true sociological stat is saying people who believe that there's some sort of afterlife, who believe there's something more waiting for them, they are the people who are not now waiting for escape to go on a cloud out of here and singing Kumbaya till that day. They're the people who are actually being most generously financed here. People who say this is all it is, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, actually are proven to be more stingy. Not a Christian's death. This is not in the church. This is just the general consensus of the day. But here's the amazing thing is Peter, I believe what he's saying to us is he's echoing a New Testament narrative where he says that you reflect whatever realm you are most aware of. You reflect whatever realm you're most aware of. So much so that Paul, the apostle, in most of his letters, if you go follow, he uses this word, these terminologies again and again. The Greek word is parousia. The word is parousia, and what that actually means is, he says, it's the expectation of Christ's second coming. It's the, the expectation. He used to keep saying again and again to the, the, the apostles, he says, those the disciples left behind, he says, lift your eyes because Christ will come back. He kept telling them that, lift your eyes. This was 2,000 or so years ago. He was saying, keep your eyes up, he might come back today. Just as he ascended, he's going to come back. So he, there's this doctrine in the church of people, early church has not actually preached a lot about <coughs> Keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes up. 
Don't become crushed by the pressures and don't become seduced by the pleasures. You see, Peter used these words throughout that text we just read. He uses the word great expectation, inheritance, heavenly home, joy ahead, glory and honor waiting, inexpressible joy coming, great reward. These are all the words that he uses for those of us here who hold on to Christ. I want to help us. very. I'm going to be a bit teachy this morning, so stick with me and we'll land with a punch. I promise. Not physically. Don't worry. If you're visiting church, we're not that church, so we don't punch people. Yeah, yeah, but we're not that church, so it's fine. You know, good, good. We give free coffees here. Um, three things about our heavenly home for you this morning. Number one, three things for you to know. It'll be on the screen very quickly. Our heavenly home, number one, according to Peter, is that it is incorruptible. What is waiting for you? Your inheritance, your heavenly home, if you're a Christ follower, is that it's incorruptible. What does this mean? That your inheritance is based on the person who's promised his character, his character, it does not change. Peter says it's kept in heaven, pure. Why this is massive is that my future inheritance in Christ Jesus is not based and subject on stock markets. It's not subject to my behavior, whether I performed or not. In Zimbabwe, there are a whole bunch of people who will never, ever invest again. Because they've been so down. My family, we've invested with Old Mutual. All the retirement funds went into it. Because of the economic collapse, there is no future inheritance for my family. My parents, all of that is gone in a day. Everything that was stowed away for 30 years of this will be the promise, this will be the promise. There are mass lawsuits against Old Mutual and other companies. If you work for Old Mutual, bless you. But in Zimbabwe, because they have been let down, because they had, actually we, had, we could not forecast an economic collapse of that regard. So everyone in Zimbabwe, anyone who comes to say, invest with me, they don't even keep the money in the banks. But he has a great news for you and I today. Whether you are in that situation, you go, there's no inheritance on earth coming. I'll tell you about your heavenly inheritance. It's not affected by stock markets. It's not affected by how well you're doing. Actually, so much so in 1 Timothy 2, it says this. When we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. So God has promised you a heavenly inheritance. Here's the incredible thing. People say nothing is impossible for God. I disagree on one point. There's one thing that theologians call the divine impossibility. It is impossible for God to deny himself. He cannot go back on his word. If he has promised it, it will remain. So what is impossible for God? It's scripture tells us he cannot deny himself. He is, says, if you're faithless this morning and you say, I don't have much courage in my heart. I'm really messing up. The great news is he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is an incredible thing. And the incredible news for you and I about the incorruptibility of our inheritance waiting is it's based on the fact of big theological word is his immutability. God does not change. I say this to my own heart. That for me, I go home and I see Zimbabwe and the facades of it has not changed. But... The people's hearts have changed. There's a cynical people. You preach anything, they go, yeah, we've heard that one before. Because they've seen it. They've seen promises and people let them down, let them down. But the great news is there's a higher being called God who's immutable, unchangeable. And his promise for you and I is that our heavenly home is incorruptible. Secondly, it is not just incorruptible, it is undefiled. Just like our high priest, as you read in, in, in Peter there, says that it's undefiled, it's kept pure, it's kept undefiled, unblemished for you and I. He has some great news. Sin and misery have no place there. All sin will cease. Here's another better one. All suffering will cease. I say praise God for that. From a guy who has had stomach ulcers for years and actually has struggled for most weeks, gets up and wants to vomit most mornings. 
I go, I'm praying for healing, but I thank God that actually if I don't see healing here, there will, will no longer be suffering in heaven. Because this is not my, this is not my true home. There's a true home. I've got a true north that's waiting for me. And this is an incredible thing for you and I. The Bible tells us you will get a new body in the new earth. A new body. I've got a, I've got a six pack on tab. I said, I've written that to the Lord, six pack. So I decided why waste my time on this body now when I'm just going to get a six pack later. So that's my logic and I'm sticking with it. I'm just sticking with that one. But, but there's this incredible Puritan preacher called Richard Baxter, and, and he stirs me because this guy, Richard Baxter, he was this guy who was one of the, one of the most powerful Puritan preachers in, the, in, the, in the Old England and an incredible man, revelation of God. But he actually had nearly, they, the, the commentators say about this guy, he had nearly every, as hyperbole, but every disease known to man. This guy, was, they say his blood was so putrid, he used to bleed from his fingernails. And he was so despised by the people because despite what happened to him, he got up and he preached and would go and retch and vomit afterwards and he'd get up and preach the next week. And, and one day he was so sick that the people hate really despised this guy because he, he just kept coming back with hope and kept coming back with the gospel. And uh, you couldn't keep this guy down. And so one day the sheriff of the, of the, the, the town, the, the, the man who presided over the, the law of that town, he came and he actually they were, they were pulling away his possessions. And they came, he was so sick and so feeble, he couldn't fight them. They lifted him off his sick bed, put him on the cold slab, and took his bed out. Richard Baxter. Why I tell you the story is not a sob story, but to tell you that one of his most famous quotes is this. He says, every time I preach, I preach as a dying man to dying men. Why? Because he had seen his own mortality, but he'd also caught a glimpse of his own immortality. What was waiting for him ahead? Something that was undefiled. This morning, I want to tell you, and put hope in your heart. This is what's coming. This is what's waiting for you. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. Thirdly, it doesn't fade. Scripture says it doesn't fade. It always retains its vigor. Your inheritance, your heavenly home always retains its beauty. It, it remains forever for you. It's ever entertaining and pleasing for the saints who possess it without the least weariness or distaste. No potholes are coming. No, 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 we, no election date is coming. Will we, will we be stable or not after? No, no vote on our, our status. Junk status or not is coming. It never fades. Not subject to bank rates. Not subject to any man's approval. It's always looking beautiful and precious for you. And, and here's the incredible truth is whatever you buy here on earth, whatever you buy, you think about it, the best car in the world. If you think of that, that amazing car, as soon as you drive it out the parking lot, from that moment, it is devaluing, it is rotting, it is going the other way. It always, you can polish the thing every day, but actually you'll never sell it again for higher than you bought it. That's why Jesus says, don't store treasures here. This is great wisdom. This is financial wisdom from Jesus. He's not trying to steal our joy. He says, don't steal, store them up here. Send them ahead. It never devalues. It only goes, escalates in value. Send your treasures. Send the store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust, can, moth, moth and rust cannot destroy. Steve's cannot break in and steal. And I used to think about heaven. I don't know about you. In my, in my juvenile state, I used to think, ah, won't you get bored? Am I the only one who ever thought that? Won't we get bored in heaven? Like, one can sing Amazing Grace only a few times. Huh? Maybe a key change here and there, but oh, come on. But, but you know what? Actually, I, I can't tell you what heaven's going to be like, but I'll tell you one thing, that from the, the, the man Jesus will be there. And here's the incredible thing, is that Jesus told us that actually there's pleasures forevermore at his right hand. He says there's joy upon joy. So much so when in the parables and stories, when one sinner repents, the father doesn't say, 
Come on inside, boy. You've made it. Come outside from the, come outside from the fun party and come and join a, a Bible class with me. No, no. He used these words. Enter into my joy. Can I tell you, I don't know what is awaiting for us, but it's pleasure forevermore. The creator of pleasure. I remember sitting with my cousin. My cousin told me, I want to come to Christ, but it seems like everything that you say to be a Christian, I need to be, is opposed to all the things I love doing. <laughs> he said, it seems like lots of fun stuff is going to be taken away from me. And I had to get in there. And, and, and logically, maybe that looks like what it looks like on the outside. But I want to tell you, he's the inventor of pleasure. He's not withholding any good things from those who love him. And, and I want to help us this morning. So three things. So those are three things about Heavenly Home. Three things to finish here is ramifications for us here and now. But if this is true, if this is not our home, here are three points for you and I. If this is not our home, number one, we can be steadfastly secure. Let me explain something that Peter rams home throughout the whole letter. If you go read it at home, it's who we are and whose we are. He says again and again, he says, you are not scum. Nero was putting public campaigns up that Christians are scum. They're worth being put in wax garments to be lighting up your parties. Saying them two for one special. Buy two Christians today to light up your next gathering. Treat it as the scum of the earth. Peter writes a letter saying, you're not scum. You're not Nero's playthings. You're not just blips on a Roman history. He says in chapter two, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God. So he starts off in that first chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, God chose you. And this, for me, carries two notions. If God chose you, sir, ma'am, and has got an inheritance waiting for us, it does two things. It creates a security that cannot be shaken and also smashes self-righteousness. A security because he chose me. And if he chose me, I can't unchoose myself. Self-righteousness, he chose me. I don't have to, I, I didn't perform enough to get there. This thing is so profound because actually the fact is that when God sat down at his massive writing desk and pulled out his giant pen to start crafting yours and mine's story, he didn't begin 2nd June 1988 at the date of my birth. He began with, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. The word is God chose us pre-temporal. He chose us before your mom and dad met, before there was a night of uh, cheap wine and bad birth control. Your mom and dad, whatever happened there, let me tell you, God chose you before that. God chose you before that. Before your parents got down and said, we'll have three kids. I hope two of them will be blonde. Before they even had met, had that discussion, God said, I chose you. If you were born out of wedlock, if you were a mistake, if you were born uh, and you're out of rape even, I've got hope for you because he chose you. He chose you. And this is the incredible confidence for security in you and I. If we were chosen, the Bible tells us that not only were we chosen, he says he put his Holy Spirit in us, Ephesians 1 says, as a deposit guaranteeing us of our future inheritance. The Spirit of God inside of you is a deposit, a down payment on what is waiting for you in the future. And if he's put that down payment in you, he's not backing away from it. This should make you so secure because actually, I don't know about you, but if I went and I invested all that I had, which is not much, but if I went and I got all of that and put it on a company and then the company started tanking, I'm not going, well, we gave it a try. Wash my hands. I'm out of here. Bad luck. No, no. I've invested all I've got. 
Same logic with the Father. The Father hasn't invested finance, something that will spoil, perish, or fade. He's invested His Holy Spirit inside of you, the very essence of His being inside of you. So when you start to tank, when you start to mess around, when you start to get broken down by the pressures or seduced by the pleasures, and you're giving in to temptation, and you're thinking, God, I, I don't know if I'm really, I don't know what, if there is more for me, or maybe I'm messing up too bad. Can I tell you what the Heavenly Father does? He doesn't wash His hand and say, sort yourself out. Because He's invested Himself. He draws nearer. He draws nearer towards you because he's invested for a future inheritance. You see, this is the thing. We become steadfastly secure. I tell you, man's opinions start to not matter to us. When we understand our true home is not here but there, fear of man dies. I've said this this again. The man Paul, the apostle, you couldn't touch him. He was a man who, who had caught a glimpse of his heavenly home. He was saying, actually, this is not my home. Rome and Jerusalem, not my homes anymore. So he's not actually that conf- uh, concerned with what's going on there. So much so that they got so frustrated with Paul. They said, Paul, if you don't stop preaching, we'll beat you. And Paul said, would you? Because I'd love to be counted worthy for suffering for the name of Christ. And they got a little bit confused. They go, okay, no, we won't beat you. Then we'll arrest you. And he goes, would you? Because then I can convert your gods and get most of the New Testament written from jail. I've been needing some alone time. And they go, no, that's it. We're not, we'll, we'll kill you. And he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You couldn't touch him because he had glimpsed something of his true home. Let me tell you in this sort of understanding that knowing that my future is secure makes me more wild, less attached to earthly goods and possessions, not stressed about world affairs and politics, stirs me to live now for the comfort of others, even at the expense of my own discomfort. You see a man, a great man named Nick Davis, a great preacher, 3CI man, shout out, Woo, from back in the day. He said this, he says, until I know that I know that I know that my eternity is secure in him, I cannot even begin to work it out here on earth. If until you know that it's so secure, you will not even begin to make a difference down here. The people who know about their future, they're people who make the most change here on earth. Secondly, ramification for us, people who know about our true home is that we can be outrageously generous. Because you see, this is a fact. When we know this is, that's, this is not our true home, that is, you can't take anything with you. You see, this is not a grand experiment of who dies with the most toys wins. Whoever impresses their families the most with the nicest house, the nicest car, yeah, I did well. It's not even going to come up in the grand summation of everything. You see, uh, my own heart, but I think it's reflective of most of Christians, is that our joy levels, how joyous we are, just track the level of our circumstances. It's been a good month. I'm blessed. <sighs> That's a problem for me because actually God is calling us to something bigger. He has a truth that the ship is going down and we're, trying, we're tying ourselves tighter and tighter to the deck. The Bible tells us that actually it's not, the days are getting darker. The Ephesians tells us the days are getting darker. And a lot of people, Christians, are going, it's getting darker. Let's just tie ourselves tighter to this thing that's going down. When God says, actually, open up your hands. You see, this Jesus says again, he says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I remember reading it and going, mm, no, those rich guys. It's tough for them, eh? Ah, reveling in my middle class life. <laughs> you know what? I could do it, but I won't do it because I've got too much respect for you. But there's, it's almost, it hurts me as the most. But if you start throwing out stats about who is truly rich and not in percentage-wise in the world, we're in the top 3% in this room, in the world. So when Jesus says, don't, don't identify yourself with a poor man. Don't do it. That's, that's blasphemous almost. That's actually very arrogant. 
I'm a poor guy. No, no, I'll show you some poor people. You're wealthy. And I know I'm very wealthy. And actually so often I put my trust in my wealth. Or lack of it or what I'm trying or my attempts to get it. Here's the thing. Generosity loosens our hands on the temporal and allows us to lay hold of the eternal. You know what? I was thinking about that other day. My first car, first car was given to me by people in the church in Durban. They came up to me and they said, Gabe, we've been praying for you. Here's a key. That's a cool gift. What does it open? <laughs> a car. That, I don't know if that, maybe for me, that's, it's, I've grown up in a culture where those things happen. But I'm going, actually, I want to grow up in a culture where those things happen now. Uh, people who've glimpsed, actually, I'm not here to, to, to gather as many cars as I can. I'm going to give some away at my own expense. I, I tell you, most of my, my, my honeymoon was paid for by other people. I, I tell you again and again, my holidays have been given to me and paid for. Now, I'm not saying this to boast about some sort of favor because I can tell you I'm a very wicked man. If you look inside my heart, this thing is not good. But I tell you, I'm just so grateful I've surrounded myself with people who've glimpsed heaven. Now, here's the thing. I pray that I would become one of those people. I pray that I'm going to be somebody who's going to be marked by irrational, outrageous generosity. When was the last time you were outrageously generous? Which was just cra- like, this is crazy. This is crazy. I'm just going to give this away. Such fun. Such fun. I tell you, it, it's hard and everything. The pressure starts to shout. But what if we could use that money for something else? The pleasure says, you could use that money for something else. But actually, I go, but actually, it's not my home. Loosens it. Tell you, you'll never, ever remain in his debt. He's the giver. Can't I give him? But here's an incredible story. And this, this, I want to tell you, this is who we are. I want to tell you this. This is who we are. We are crazy, generous people. I look at, I went around the room. I can point out many people who are already this. But I want to call us to a higher stand. See your home. See your heavenly home. Everything else must go. You see, there's a man named Jim Elliot. I'll tell the story very quickly. Jim Elliot was a man who grew up in, um, in, in America, a young man who came through the, the prominent ranks. He was an incredible man of faith and a, a great orator. And, as, and he just had this track in life going this way. And everyone was like, Jim Elliot is going to be a, a name you'll know. But uh, Jim he was about to get married. But before the big wedding day, he said, actually, I feel my heart burning for the South American tribe who've never heard the gospel. They're a cannibalistic tribe. And I think I need to go. And everyone cried, no. No, Jim. No, Jim, not you, buddy. You've got to met Your future is with a microphone. You'll have much more influence that way. And he, they chatted in lots of tears, and it was not an easy decision. They got married, him and his young wife. And then his wife waved him off, and he jumped on a plane and went to this tribe in South America. And even whitewashed with bated breath, Jim Elliott going to this, this tribe. The incredible thing was Jim Elliott, he stepped off that plane. An arrow was released, went through his head. He didn't, he didn't hardly breathe the breath on South American territory. He didn't get to preach. And the, crowd, the, the American public went, what a waste. We must hold the church accountable for such a wastage. But at his funeral, his wife got up and she read a quote that Jim Elliot had written down in his diary. And the quote is this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot had glimpsed something of his heavenly, heavenly home. The amazing thing is, was his wife then led another mission trip and another mission trip of students, another mission trip of students into that area until that area was reached for Christ. Because of the back of Jim Elliot's story. We can be outrageously generous for time's sake. We can also be radically obedient. You see, we're not losing out on any pleasures. 
let me say all this, uh, just a quick disclaimer that it doesn't mean we don't enjoy what he has given us here, but to enjoy it best here is to view it through an eternal lens. You see, marriage, the Bible tells us that there'll be no marriage in heaven. There'll be no giving and taking of marriage spouses in heaven. That's what scripture tells us. I'm married here. It's a gift from God for here. But can I tell you, if I make my wife the be-all and end-all, I'll be submerged in pressure and feeling frustrated or, or the pursuit of pleasure just to make her happy, and my life will get really, really small. But when I view marriage saying, actually, God, thank you for this gift. I'm going to enjoy it and make the most of it here, but I'm going to view it through the lens of eternity. My marriage is made for your gospel. Thriving and joy will come to your marriage. Same thing with homes. Homes are not a bad thing. Cars are not a bad thing. Hobbies, holidays, good things. But when they become the, the thing that you put your, your hope in, if they're not viewed from an eternal perspective, I'm telling you, if God, when God gives us a home, when God gives, God gives us a car, when God gives us a thing, if I say, Father, use this for your glory because it's not, it's here, yeah, it's temporal. Watch what God will do through it. Because Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham lived as a foreigner in the land, looking forward to a city whose architect and builder was God. I tell us one story in a land. <coughs> Sorry about the coughing and spluttering. It's all temporary. There's a story that I heard this last week. It was phenomenal. Of a missionary couple who had lived in South East Asia for many years, giving of their finest years, their finest efforts, all their money to go serve an unreached people group. And uh, this was in the, in the early 90s and uh, 1900s. And as they were coming back at the time of Roosevelt in America, and as they were coming back on the, on the ship for a well-deserved break, just get to, to New York and to, to get back into life and just find their feet a little bit before and uh, work out their future, they were coming back. And on the same ship was Franklin Roosevelt, the president, who had gone all the way over to that similar de- destination just for a two-week vacation and to do some state visits and wave to a few people. And on that trip home, they realized they were coming into the, the New York port. They realized that a massive band was out there to welcome the president home from his two-week visit. There was a massive fanfare and celebration, fireworks display, and, 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 and street performers, and a crowd whooping, and street lines of people. The president is home from his two weeks away. And the missionary couple got more and more frustrated, saying, there'll be no one waiting for us there. We've given 10 years of our lives, the best of our lives, to serve people, and no one's going to celebrate us. No one's going to applaud us. This is not right. And they got off, and Roosevelt was hailed, and no one welcomed them. They slipped off in the crowd, went to a, a dingy downtown flat, trying to work their future. And the husband was frustrated with all this, saying, this is not right. And the wife, after a while, said, listen, I think you need to go speak to God about it. Go sit in a room, pray, and ask God for perspective. She said, fine, fine, I'll do it. He went in, and he came out after a little while with a smile on his face and much more peace. She said, what happened? No, God spoke to me. He's like, that's incredible. What do you say? He said, God whispered in my ear, you're not home yet, son. You're not home yet. As I heard that, I realized that actually so often we're living for the applause. We're living for the bank balance. We're living for things here when actually there is a far greater reward waiting for you and I. That if we put our hope and our courage and our efforts into that, if we get a glimpse of home, We'll live more effectively here. We'll be more outrageously generous. We'll be more radically obedient. We'll be more uh, steadfastly secure. This is who we will be if we glimpse the picture of our home. Can we close our eyes, please? This morning, I, 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 in, a, in a brief, rapid-fired way, I wanted to give you what is stirring in my heart. Next week, we've got Dylan and Tess Yarnick preaching, starting a new series in August. But just today, on this one-off, I want to ask you a question. Are you overwhelmed by pressures? 
the world seems like it's caving in all around you and you don't know where to turn. Maybe you're seduced by pleasures. You've just been giving in to sin, giving in to brokenness, just giving in. And you say, I, can't, I don't know how to get out of that. This morning I want to ask with you, let's ask God for a glimpse of eternity. Because here's the thing, when God speaks his word over you and says, you're my son, you're my daughter, who through my love and well pleased, when he speaks his truth and says, you're chosen, puts a down payment of the Holy Spirit, your identity is permanent. But your passport is temporary. Today, I believe God is reminding every one of us that our identities are permanent, but our passports are temporary. You are aliens and strangers here, sir, man. This is not your home. This is why we exist as a church. Today, if you are here, I love you just to, if you, if you can, if you're comfortable, can you just lift your hands where you sit? I want to pray for God's grace and favor. As Father, I pray as hands just lifted to you this morning as a church, as we remind ourselves of our heavenly home. I thank you, Jesus, for every heart to be warmed with a vision of eternity. I pray, God, would it rattle us, would it, sh- would it shake us, would it lift our vision to lift our eyes, the perusia, lift your eyes to the inheritance that's waiting, incorruptible, undefiled, never fading inheritance that enables us when we get a glimpse of what is to come, no matter what we face, trials, persecution, joys, pain, excitement, we can be steadfastly secure. We can be outrageously generous and we can be radically obedient because we are not home yet. I thank you, Father God, would you do this deep in our heart? Because this is who we are. We are a people, life changes church. We are aliens and strangers. We're in this world, but we're not of it. We're living for a future kingdom whose architect and builder is God. That's our home. That's our inheritance. It gives us courage here on earth today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.